Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis.com Podcast. I'm Nina Pantic, and I'm joined by Irina Falcone. Hey, guys. How's it going? And our special guest is Anne Wooster. She is the former New Haven tournament director and now the president of UTR, which is Universal Tennis Rating. So, Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nina and Irina. Good to be here. We'd love to just start with checking in and seeing what you're up to these days, because we know that you were a longtime director in New Haven for 21 years, but things have quickly changed and uh, possibly for the better. So what are you up to these days? Well, um, we th- it was an amazing 21-year run for the Connecticut Open. It was an ATP and a WTA event, um, and a lot of wonderful memories, a lot of giving back to community. Um, but at the end of the day, the financial model didn't work without a title sponsor. So we sold the tournament to China in February. I was hoping to take the summer off and um, was lucky to have quite a few um, opportunities for the next chapter of my life. And when Mark Lashley and Universal Tennis came along, it was an opportunity too good to be true. Um, you know, as you, as you probably know, UTR is a, a free rating of ability for every player and a digital community that supports level-based play. Um, and it tracks and measures every player in the world on one rating system. And it expands opportunities for players at all levels, all ages, genders. And it's basically all about making tennis more affordable, accessible, and fun for everyone. Um, so it's a, it's a brilliant concept with really great partners, fantastic team. And, um, it was, for me, it was the chance to use 35 years in pro tennis, you know, on, on all sides of pro tennis to make a difference and grow our sport using technology. So I'm pretty excited to be here. That's so cool. I mean, UTR has become so popular in so many ways for colleges, for junior players coming up. It's so cool to hear about it. We had Stephen Armitrage back uh, a while back. He was on the podcast as well, and he was telling us all about it. Super cool, super innovative. So you're based in Connecticut. Um, the company is based in California. Is that a problem at all? Like, do you have to commute a lot or no? <laughs> no, um, um, we are almost 50 um, employees and consultants, and the preponderance of the company works remotely, not just in the United States, but um, around the world. Um, but as president, I'm a big believer in FaceTime. So I get out to Palo Alto, where the headquarters is, at least once a month. And then I, you know, I obviously I go to the Grand Slams um, with today with modern technology, as you can imagine, with a technology company, we take full advantage of all kinds of technology platforms. Um, it's easy to communicate um, with all of my colleagues um, everywhere in the country and in the world. Were you familiar with UTR before you 
got signed on, like pretty familiar with it because it's been around for a couple of years and I think it's grown exponentially in terms of popularity and use. So now I think it's everywhere. But do you know, do you know about it from the very beginning? Basically, the company's UTR engagement platform is built on the rating, but the rating is just a foundation. And since Mark has um, bought the company, there's all kinds of tools and technology for tennis organizers to run engaging open level based events and offering players the chance to connect and discover events and other players and clubs and tournaments worldwide. So there's um, a platform for high schools. There's a platform for colleges, as Arena just mentioned. There's a platform for um, for clubs. There's a platform. There's a mobile app for um, for individual players. And there's in the very first month, there's something like more. There's more than twenty five thousand downloads of this new mobile app in the first, um, you know, from seventy different countries. So. You know, the rating is just the foundation, but there's all these other tools and technologies to help grow the game and create this tennis ecosystem around level-based play. You know, uh, we hear from parents and players constantly about how UTR is a great equalizer and creates opportunities, particularly for kids that wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity so I just heard this story last week. There's a single mom of three tennis playing kids. And for the oldest, the family sacrificed everything. So money they didn't have and weekend after weekend of travel in order for their 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 kid to secure a college sponsorship scholarship. And, and then kid number two um, couldn't afford to do what they did for kid number one. So he wasn't able to get on the radar of college coaches and wasn't able to get a scholarship or play tennis in college. And then along comes kid number three, who plays high school team tennis and his matches counted for UTR because UTR um, recognizes high school tennis. So this kid number three um, had a UTR, was on the radar of college coaches so he got re recruited for college. So same result as kid number one, but just way less travel and way less financial burden for this family. So um, because of, of this high school platform, UTR is really making tennis so much more affordable and accessible to kids who can't go out and play competitive tournaments. You know, it's interesting – because you mentioned it's way more than just a rating because we actually had Bob Moran on, uh, the Charleston tournament director, and they held a pre-qualifying tournament based off UTR. So we've heard a lot about different kinds of events beyond just knowing what your number is. But you said that you play. How did you get into tennis? Why tennis? What got you in the door? You know, was your first job? I know you also worked for the WTA. So like, how did you get this rolling? <laughs> um, I come from a tennis family and I've I started playing when I was probably four or five years old. My parents taught tennis um, as a second profession as and also as volunteers in our community. So my father would t teach all of my friends um, and me on Saturday mornings, and we'd all have to play matches during the week because he recognized that a lesson is great, but you really need to understand match play. And so that was my introduction to tennis, thanks to my parents. And um, I was a very avid high school player um, and did not play at school. I went to a D1 school, so 
um, probably wouldn't have, um, I wasn't recruited and I probably would have barely made the team, but I basically decided that, um, I, I, I wasn't going to be a tennis player when I grew up. So I was not going to spend 80 hours a week traveling and training. So I joined the student union instead and used my event marketing passions and skills to organize plays and concerts and movies and speakers. And, um, that really defined my four years at Duke university and senior year, like so many other seniors, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, um, Todd McCormick, the son of Mark McCormick, the founder of IMG walked up to me on the quad and said, you don't know me, but I know what you do here. And I think you'd be perfect for my father's company, IMG. (laughs) So my first, and I had no idea what IMG was. I had no idea what sports marketing was. Um, I went off to Spain and worked as an au pair to learn Spanish, came back a year later and bumped into Todd. And that's how I started at IMG, answering phones and taking ticket orders in the attic of Longwood Cricket Club in Boston in 1982, 1983. And then, um, so that was really the beginning. And within a week I knew I'd found my niche in life and I got a chance to work in the sport, you know, with that was in my blood. And that was so good for, you know, for friendships, for fitness, for fun, um, and a sport you could play forever. Um, so that was the beginning. And as arena mentioned, I was very, um, honored to be named the first CEO of the WTA 11 years later, first female CEO of any sports organization at the time. And um, that's where I met Arena and um, and a lot of other players. And um, then when I wanted to focus on my family and raising my children, I decided to do something a little bit more consistent with my personal priorities. And so that's when I went to New Haven and started running the Connecticut Open at Yale the week before the U.S. Open um, for 21 years. And now here I am in sort of APW 3.0 with a technology startup out of Silicon Valley, which is all about growing tennis and this this movement and groundswell that it will change the game because it's equal, it's open, and it's inviting. I love that you said APW 3.0. It's (laughs) almost like you've had like several careers in your life, if you will. I I definitely have. And the chance to use 35 years on all sides of pro tennis, you know, the player side, the tournament side, the sponsor side, my Virginia Slims days, and then the governing body side to make a difference and grow the sport was, um, you know, using technology was just sort of the chance of a lifetime. I had one board member um, interview me. And after, you know, looking at my resume and hearing about my background, he looked at me and he goes, don't you feel that this job is your destiny, Anne? <laughs> and, <laughs> That's pretty cool yeah, for someone to say Yeah, that. yeah. So... It's an amazing team of people who are all all very mission-driven and all very committed to growing the game. And, you know, a lot of tennis players and a lot of non-tennis players, but we're, you know, we're really trying to get back to the passion and love of tennis, um, about community, fun, friendship, 
um, and really help grow this movement. And um, I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm, I feel really lucky. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. All right, guys, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Anne Worcester. Um, we're talking about her experience in tennis over 35 years worth of experience. Let's get back to Anne. With your new role, what would you say is like going to be your day-to-day? Um, so my focus broadly is on growing um, and developing universal tennis worldwide and spreading the word about the mission and how um, universal tennis is positively impacting this game um, and this this movement and this groundswell um, that we're helping to build. Um, with, you know, 35 years of relationships in tennis, uh, my focus is on industry relations and building partnerships with um, any and all key stakeholders in the sport and working with those stakeholders to to grow the game using technology and leveraging t- technology. So that's a pretty big part of, so I'll, I'll have meetings with um, federations, with governing bodies, with coaches, with ATP and um, WTA tournament directors, like the Bob Morans of the world who stage um, pre they stage pre ATP or WTA tournaments and that offer a wild a wild card or even sometimes prize money in their communities and these UTR tournaments help to build awareness for ATP and, and WTA tournaments and they and they also help to build a digital community in each one of those markets. So lots of meetings. You seem like the most connect, well-connected person in tennis. <laughs> and I've seen, I know I haven't been to New Haven, but I used to see photos of you with the players. And then I know when uh, the tournament was ending, people were genuinely very sad and upset. Like, I mean, I think Petra Kvitova, someone you had at the tournament many times, a multiple-time champion. What were your relationship like with the players? And do you have any special connections or memories with anyone um, that maybe our listeners might be familiar with? That's so nice of you to say, you know, my entire career has been built on relationship building and bringing people together around common goals. I mean, you, um, you know, the New Haven tournament and the week before the U.S. Open would never have survived if it wasn't for this group of very diverse stakeholders that came together. You know, Yale, the city of New Haven, the state of Connecticut, Yale New Haven Hospital, Sponsors from both the pilot, the private and the public sector and, you know, the ability to bring those very diverse and unique stakeholders together was a real thrill for me. And it meant that the tournament was able to um, not just survive, but thrive for for 21 years. Um, So when it comes to players, I basically, you know, and Arena can speak to this. I always treated the players like business people. And, you know, when we introduced the ACES program back in 1995, because players then were doing very little to promote and and market their sport, 
I simply sat down with them and said, you know, we need you to do more to promote, you know, and develop your sport. You need to leave a legacy to those that come um, behind you, just like a legacy has been built and, and left for you by Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett. Um, and, you know, whether it was a WTA patch that they had to wear or aces or any other new rule, I always just tried to explain things to players as business people. And I found that the more you treated them like professionals, the more they acted like professionals. And when it came to having my own tournament after working on all these different sides of the sport, it was very important to me to make the players feel welcome. And I had seen so many best practices around the world. I've seen a lot of not so good practices as well. And so I took all those learnings and really tried to make the players feel super comfortable um, in New Haven. Everything from, you know, hiring the best player services team I could possibly find in the world to um, having uh, lots of practice courts to um, the, the best food to a very popular passport program where they ran around New Haven and experienced all the world-class international award-winning restaurants of New Haven, to playing golf at Yale, to daily gifts, to just welcoming them when they walked through the door. Um, I, you know, I the feedback that we always got that is that players really felt welcome in New Haven. Um, Lindsay Davenport, and then later. Um, mm. Petra Kvitova coined it the calm before the storm of New York. And so we just tried to make everything easy and fun for players. And when, you know, even those videos that Arena just mentioned, we had so much fun with the players, whether it was a solar eclipse um, uh, video or a shot clock video, players loved, um, we, we would pick salient, relevant to topics. We had a world-class um, uh, PR term, Matt, P PR team, Matt Van Tynan for a long time, and then Katie Spellman more recently. Um, and then, you know, we just did really, really cool things with the players that resonated with them. And then they would share and retweet on their social media platforms. And, you know, just social media has made it easier to keep in touch with players. So whereas recruiting used to be like a spring job for me, it, you know, over the past 10 years, it's really become a year round job and keeping in touch with players um, 12 months a year. So that really helped with relationship building. Um, and I think the players enjoy having a female tournament director and, and a female who is married with kids. I've had a lot of players tell me I'm a role model and ask me for life advice. <laughs> so it's just something that I've always really enjoyed and treasured. And I feel lucky to have the relationships that I have with players and, and still do. Um, going to the French Open in this new role was, um, was a real joy. And I had so many tennis players say really nice things about um, being glad that I was staying in tennis because I, 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 I did look at several opportunities outside of tennis. What would you have done outside of tennis? I'm just a little curious because it sounds like you are all in in tennis forever. Um, I have this whiteboard in my home office and I had a list of um, tennis opportunities that I was looking at, non-tennis sports opportunities that I was looking at, and non-sports 
And when you announce that you're selling your tournament to China, sort of everyone knows you're available. And so there was a lot of incoming calls and interest and opportunities. So it was a lot of fun um, networking with people, um, longtime friends in sports and entertainment marketing. I really enjoyed the transition, but was very um, clear that this universal tennis opportunity was just too good to be true. So I even gave up on my dream for taking the summer off. But I did take my first summer vacation in 22 years last week. I went to Scotland. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> in 22 years, that's mm-hmm. a good effort. Yeah, no, because um, when you run a tournament, it's a it's a 52-week project. And those last three months are the most intense and, you know, 15-hour days and marketing and public relations and social media and operations and building a site and building a player field. So there's just no way we had a no vacation policy. And so of course, even the tournament director had to abide by it. I just want to follow up on everything you've said. It, it must it must have felt pretty good on uh, getting all those calls and all those messages. It must be nice to feel wanted um, when people see that you've done such a great job and had such success with a tournament they obviously want you part of their team and I can attest to New Haven being being a wonderful tournament every time I went there I just I absolutely loved it so thank you and it does it is sad that it's gone but you did really um an amazing job and as I was listening to you talk about it it was amazing to see how you guys never stopped trying to be better it was always like what more can we do Mm. and that's really important I think for players because a lot of the times it's it's like, okay, well, it's all about the fans. It's all about the money coming in. But at the end of the day, it's really all about the players. And that's what I know I felt that when I was at New Haven. Oh, that's really great feedback. And um, yes, I was just absolutely dreading this announcement on February 1st that we were selling the tournament after so many people, players, staff, sponsors, partners really, um, you know, gave it their all for so long. And the notes on social media, text, phone calls, emails, um, I actually made a book um, of all the nice notes, because I was completely blown away by them. And it really helped me to recognize that even though the tournament was sold to China, all the memories, all the the learnings, all the people that it touched, all the inner city youth that it touched, none of that will ever change. That will never go away. And that was a huge part of, um, of saying goodbye. So, um, and then of course we got really lucky because we started talking to the Oracle Challenger series about possibly replacing Chicago on the Oracle Challenger series. And, I'm super excited that they chose New Haven. And so in our very first year of no Connecticut Open, we have a Oracle Challenger Series event, ATP and WTA Challengers. So um, sorry to see the Connecticut Open go, but really excited and grateful to Oracle for bringing pro tennis back to New Haven and so soon, <laughs> a week after. <laughs> it's impressive how quickly they pounced on the same area because same it's the same center, right? Same center. We're going to use the courts of Yale. We're going to use the, the bowels of the tennis center. We're not going to play in the stadium in year one 
So, um, but we're building a stadium on one of the courts of the Yale Tennis Center. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, so we're here with Ann Worcester, an amazing role model. She has been in tennis for so long, and she was the tournament director for New Haven Tournament, which was an incredible WTA tournament for 21 years. Let's get back to her. What's your role with that Oracle Challenger? Do you have an official capacity or you're just helping out? Um, I, I sort of helped to put the deal together last winter and into the spring. And then um, I'm, I, I think they call me the tournament ambassador um, in press you know, releases. But yeah, I'm basically the go between between Yale and Oracle and the Tennis Foundation of Connecticut. Which is the pre, which is the one that the foundation that owns the tennis center and, um, owned the, uh, Connecticut open sanction. So, but there's a lot of capable people that are, um, taking all that and making it happen. You know, I'm, I'm helping a little bit with player, with player <laughs> recruiting. Um, you know, we were, we, Ali Risk and Stephen Amritraj got married a couple of weeks ago and it was an amazing event. And, you know, there was like 15 American women there. And besides the fact that it was a really fun reunion with all these great players and we all had so much fun, but I was able to make sure that they all entered the Oracle Challenger Series before the deadline. And I looked at the entry list and it was like, most of the wedding is there. I just sent an email to Allie and Stephen yesterday saying, most of the wedding is on this list. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So networking and a celebration of Stephen and Allie (laughs) at the same time. And so one of the best parts about the wedding was when I showed up to the rehearsal dinner and Allie's wearing this gorgeous dress and looks absolutely just so beautiful. And she was wearing a Connecticut open player gift from four years no ago. Way. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun. It was so rewarding. It was a really fun wedding. It was so special. And they are an amazing couple. And everyone at that wedding, like became best friends. It was like there was just so much love in the air. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful weekend. It's another big testament to you and your your career because getting invited to a player's wedding is no small feat as a tournament director. So that's pretty cool too. <laughs> Stephen always laughs that Stephen and I knew each other before UTR. And of course, Allie played the pot open many times. And so Stephen always jokes about how many times he came to me as a USTA coach begging for wild cards. But um, we did, we did, we, we were able to take care of quite a few American players, including Allie along the way. So um, it was nice to be invited to their wedding. <laughs> it's, it is, it tells a lot. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, wild cards and all that because I was just, kind of seeing how the Bronx Open got underway and how they were trying to figure out all that stuff from the very bottom up for the first time. And is there any, like, I know everyone's very competitive in tennis and everyone's fighting for their for their place, but is there any animosity or annoyance when your tournament ends and some other tournament starts right away, like the Bronx Open came in that same week? The week before the U.S. Open is a super challenging week on the WTA Tour because 
um, it's the U.S. Open. And over the years, more and more players um, uh, have their uh, commercial endorsement obligations that week and Madison Avenue um, obligations that week, or they want to practice, especially on the men's side. But thankfully, a lot of the women prefer to play into form and, and, and play tough matches instead of practicing. So um, we were really lucky. We had an average of like five of the top 10 players in the world every single year for 21 years and a cutoff, you know, that was, you know, crazy strong, like 38 in the world. That said, the um, U.S. Open grew to three weeks with their fan week, um, and it was getting harder and harder to keep up with prize money increases on the WTA. Prize money is going up to a million dollars at that level. Next year, we um, struggled with finding a title sponsor. So, um, so basically, we had to make the difficult decision to sell the sanction. But I really think that the reason New Haven succeeded for so long is because in this challenging week is because it's so proximate to New York. I, you know, it, it the, the, when the sanction was in San Antonio, it didn't work. It was in Atlanta long ago, didn't work. It was in Stratton Mountain, didn't work. The first time it ever worked was in New Haven. So it was a great deal for the WTA and the, you know, U.S. Open to have player jobs, um, you know, proximate to New York. Players could fly in. They didn't have to get in an airplane. They, you know, we literally drove them to their New York um, hotel, as um, Arena knows, when they finished in New Haven. And it was just easy, you know, the calm before the storm of New York. But when we had to sell, it was just very clear that the financial model no longer worked. So the WTA was faced with a, uh, a hole in the calendar, a very important hole, because as Arena knows, you have to have player jobs leading into the fourth and final Grand Slam of the year. So that was a big a big problem. They they struggled to find a replacement tournament, even at a, a lower prize money level, what we call international on the WTA. And so I think they have several cities that are interested in 2020, but they really needed jobs for 2019. So they were lucky that the Bronx stepped up, you know, the uh, the NYJTL uh, board and the USTA subsidized it, the WTA subsidized it because the Bronx could not do it on their own. And it's this beautiful Carrie Leeds facility with, I think, like 20 courts. And so it's great that it was utilized. Um, but the only way they'll be able to succeed is if they find some major sponsors. So um, hopefully they'll have some sponsorship interest in the future. Anything we were hoping that the W that players would have jobs, but the difficulty in getting a commitment for 2019 from other cities really just underscored how amazing it was that New Haven had this 21 year run because it's a really, really, really tough week on the WTA calendar, um, probably the toughest week on the calendar. You know, there's no doubt that players need jobs that week, and the Bronx filled a very important role, and um, we should be grateful to them for stepping up. Yeah, it was it was a great it was a great week. We want to just congratulate you on all that you've done for tennis and all these different jobs and roles and things you've filled. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> You're a badass. <laughs> 
repping repping the women in tennis business and it's important to have women in high roles and you're definitely in all of them so we want to thank you for joining us today i think we've covered a lot of ground oh well it's my pleasure and um, please say hello to ed mcgrogan for me will do will do thanks so much and have a great rest of your weekend thanks for having me from the tennis channel podcast network this has been the tennis.com podcast be sure to subscribe to stay caught up We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.